that's where I've been really fortunate to learn from people like Rakovetsky and other people that understood like how the spine worked and what the importance of the foot was in terms of the proprioception that it gave the body. So it's basically telling your body, like, look, this is what I need to do to be able to do what you're asking me to do. And so we'll incorporate a balance element into almost all the strength work we do. And it starts out from a simple standpoint of balancing on discs or slant boards or pipes and stuff. But then the balance disc will use those in a standing squat movement because now the foot becomes like a hand that can grip something. Mm -hmm. And remember the foot is so important because it's a suspension system that the rest of the body has to stretch again. And the foot has flex as well. So it's constantly trying to progress that. And I don't think that people understand that the importance that you're, what balance is. Balance means that you can keep your body in a centered position, no matter how it's challenged. And so you have to activate all these different muscle groups to be able to do that. And it involves the spine, it involves the hips, it involves everything. That was Gavin McMillan, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our longtime sponsor, simplyfaster.com. There's two items I'd like to talk to you about today that you can find in Simply Faster's online store. Uh, whether you're a coach or an athlete, these are both things that you'll find highly useful as tools in your training toolbox. The first is blood flow restriction training methods. And after hearing about blood flow restriction training for years now, as well as the results that athletes are getting with it, especially in, for example, uh, lactate sports like swimming, 100 uh, meter freestyle. I And not only hearing of that, but also seeing how much some swimmers had liked that type of training method, I knew I had to start trying it out myself. So uh, I've been utilizing the air bands. I really enjoy it, both the uh, the feeling of training of while I'm actually training with them, as well as seeing the visual result of spending time training with the methods and then the strength result. Uh, they've been a really cool training tool, and I would definitely recommend checking into air bands. Uh, SimplyFaster.com also has B Strong brand blood flow restriction. The second item is the VMAX Pro, and this is a new option for velocity-based training, barbell tracking. It provides valuable load-based data, including speed in all phases of a lift, and it delivers key metrics such as power, velocity, distance, as well as duration of effort. The VMAX Pro system measures any lift you can think of. It's portable, durable, and intuitive. You can check out these two items and much more at our sponsor, simplyfaster.com's online store. Let's get on to the show. Hello, and welcome to another show. Thank you for joining me on this podcasting journey in exploring athletic performance. A quick story before we start. When I was 21 years old, it was the off-season for me in track and field. It was the summer, and I got into a book called Probot X, written by Marv Marinovich and Edith Huis. Within the book was a lot of training methods that revolved around balance and proprioception. They didn't use heavy weights. There was a lot of things like PVC pipes and balance, balance discs and physio balls, and I used a lot of the exercises from that book. And within six weeks, I was jumping incredibly easily and fluidly. I, I remember going up. Uh, it's funny, the things in my memory banks, but I remember throwing myself an alley-oop after a pickup game of basketball at the YMCA and was blown away just by how effortless it was, the process of me getting off the ground, going up and dunking that ball. I've kept a lot of those training ideologies and thoughts from that book with me as I've moved forward in athletic performance. Our guest today, Gavin McMillan, who is a sports performance coach and founder of Sports Science Lab, utilizes many balance-based, proprioception-based tools in his training regimen. Although possibly triggering to some, he does not use barbells, heavy weights in his program. 
He does use a large amount of balance and proprioception-based movements. He also uses a lot of machines similar to the SuperCat machine that many of you may have seen in the past. If you are interested in more of his uh, training methods as a precursor to the show, I would suggest checking out the show notes of this on Just Fly Sports. Uh, more about Gavin, though, here. He grew up in Toronto, Canada, and participated in seven high school sports. Gavin has a tremendous movement background personally, and I think that's so awesome because so often it's easy to say, well, I took this educational course, I got this degree, I, got, I, did, this, um, I did this educational process, but at the end of the day, so much of coaching comes out of intuition through personal experience. And I really enjoy talking to coaches who have a deep, diverse, a different experience that led to their own methodology. Gavin is going to take us into his training methods today and how he builds uh, speed, reactivity, jumping ability, and cultivates a tremendous resistance to injury. If you've heard about the methods used by Sports Science Lab, you will commonly hear of results such as big increases in vertical jump height and a big reduction in injury rates. Regardless of where you stand in terms of your closeness to traditional weightlifting maxes as a form of progress in a program, you'll be a better coach by understanding Gavin's approach to training athletes and looking at his experience that led him there. On the show today, Gavin will share, as I mentioned, about his background as an athlete, and then he'll talk about some of his results from using a non-barbell-based training program that incorporates a lot of balance components to it. He'll be talking about training and linking up the foot into his resistance training methods, talking about how he gets, um, how he utilizes force production training without using barbells and how he'll use it isometrically on machines, as well as many other uh, concepts for improvements in athletic performance. This was an outside-the-box show that, in my mind, is a must-listen for any coach looking to maximize the transfer that exists between what we are doing in the gym and what is happening on the field and the demands of the athlete on the levels of dynamic balance and proprioception and athletic force application. Let's get on to it. Episode 271 with coach Gavin McMillan. Gavin, welcome to the show, man. Uh, could you start by giving us a little bit of your own athletic background? Because I know that how you came up into athletics might be different than a lot of people. And it always fascinates me to hear coaches' stories of how they got into uh, sports performance as well. Yeah, I mean, geez, I mean, it's another lifetime ago. But, you know, as a child, my my father wouldn't let me play organized hockey until he knew I could skate well. And um, he actually was, without knowing it, was had, you know, discovered that there was a flaw, you know, with what we were doing with kids in sports and that we weren't actually teaching them to be athletes before you let them play sports. And the problem with that, obviously, is then you're dropping him into this, this pool and then just whoever is the best, you know, finds a way to get out. And instead of actually teaching them you know, how to run, how to jump, all these other things before they try to play basketball um, it would be the simplest example. So he put me in ballet class when I was like five years old and then figure skating when I was six. And when I was seven and a half, I was finally allowed to play you know, an organized hockey league. Um, it was like cheating. You know, I could skate so much better than everyone else. Uh, won the scoring title by double. And now you think you're good. And so I started pushing that envelope and I love the sport, um, still do. Uh, it really uh, opened my eyes in terms of understanding because at the time, you don't know what you're doing. You're just going to ballet class and hating every single second of it. Uh, and the same with the figure skating. And, uh, and that's before you get into, you know, all the other uh, teasing you're going to get for being in it. But 
but what a gift it was because now I was taught balance. I was taught flexibility. I was taught how to control my body in space. Um, and then I got into figure skating. I had to really find different ways to balance on little, you know, small blades. And I was skating circles around people. And then by the time I was 16, I was the fastest guy in the province of Ontario or won our showdown competition for that. Um, and again, you know, then people say, oh, you're so talented. And I, I totally disagree with that. I was, I was given tools that other people weren't given. And then my obsessiveness with things uh, and wanting to be the best obviously played a big role in that. And it was a different era back then. We, we all played multiple sports. So I played seven predominantly, you know, basketball and volleyball were two that I really loved in high school, but our travel team teams I played on were in baseball and, and hockey and hockey. We played to the highest level in provincial junior hockey. And my teammates all played in the NHL and, um, you know, I high jumped in track. I ran the hundred, um, I also um, played soccer and then ultimately, you know, all that kind of got stopped with my mom's death and I got shipped off to a tennis academy that I had never played the sport before. And that was an extremely frustrating and humbling experience because, you know, you go from being, you know, pretty good at things. And now because you're such at a technical deficit to everyone you're playing against, even though you're faster than them and can jump higher, throw things harder. Um, it, it was just, uh, you know, a horrible experience from the standpoint of losing all the time and not being able to figure out why and not having coaches that could tell me, you know, the right technique to use. Um, and again, it, it really exposed the coaching business for a lot of what it is and that we end up blame, blaming the players for their lack of production when we're not actually doing our job in terms of relaying information properly. So from there, I ended up playing college tennis and managed to get a scholarship doing that and um, briefly tried to play pro tennis for a few years, but never got past the lower levels of pro ranks. And I got hired to work for Monica Sellison during her comeback as a hitting partner. And what was so great about that was, hey, Monica's you know, one of the nicest people you meet. Um, but meeting her dad, who really understood human mechanics really well, knew how to coach, knew how to organize a practice understood you know the mental side of of what players and athletes at that level went through and really knew how i thought how to manage her well uh that was a big exposure to you know really being around a coach that i thought, thought knew how to teach the mechanics pretty well um from there i worked uh with another tennis player who ultimately uh we ended up working with uh, Mar Marinovich uh, for quite a period of time. And it's when I started getting exposed to what he was doing. And then, you know, from there, I really started taking concepts of what he did and really trying to apply the research and the science that came out of the Russians uh, during the 70s and 80s. And that was predominantly a scientist named Yuri Verkashansky. And his work called Super Training is what our entire company's concepts have come from and we've really tried to expand on them from what he built um but that's you now the kind of the short explanation of what the history is and now what we're doing is really trying to build equipment around the concepts that we we have we have known to work but also build a platform that can measure the the things from a data standpoint that you can prove it and understanding the differences of what force and power are, especially in human movement. And being able to, you know, understand that 
without having the data, it ends up always being someone's philosophy. And I've never wanted to do that. That's why we call the company the name that it is. It's science, you know, based company, but it's still a lab because everything isn't known about sports science research. And we are going to continue to test that and push the boundaries of that. So that's kind of the short version. I love that stuff. It's it's so interesting for me to hear just about backgrounds and what uh, formed your philosophy on how to train an athlete. I think that so often in probably in any industry, but in the athletic performance industry, I feel like there's oftentimes we look at because I want to ask you about traditional strength training. People tend to polarize things a lot. Like they'll say they'll think that everything that's not traditional barbell training that's has balance components that that you mentioned your time as a figure skater and i know that you guys Mm -hmm. utilize a lot of things involving balance as soon as people hear balance Mm -hmm. they think they maybe think something that's done in physical just in physical therapy they imagine an athlete just on a wobble board maybe getting thrown a ball or something that's look lower intensity well the, the question right away then is to ask why do they do it in physical therapy yeah yeah well that's the thing too is a lot of athletes i know will be training very hard. I've seen this in track happen, uh, like individual sports Mm -hmm. and an athlete's Mm -hmm. training really hard. They're doing a lot of high output things and then they get hurt and they have Mm -hmm. to rest Mm -hmm. and they do physical therapy based Mm -hmm. exercises for maybe three Mm -hmm. weeks. They come back and Mm -hmm. they set personal bests. I've seen, and of course, you know, you can Mm -hmm. say maybe they were overtrained and needed to rest as well, but I definitely think that paying attention to some of those, um, other core facets of athleticism are really important too. And I've, I've definitely seen that happen. It's happened to me too. I remember when I tweaked my hamstring as a high jumper, that was a blessing because mm-hmm. I had to take a break, slow down, focus mm-hmm. on some more finer point things. My training partner in college who was a long jumper got hurt, had to go to physical therapy type stuff for a few weeks, came mm-hmm. back and was PRing by like eight inches in long jump. So, um, mm-hmm. but anyways, uh, what I, where I wanted to go was uh, your relationship with barbells and weights. I, I think that mm-hmm. y- you've been, you guys don't utilize traditional weight training in your programming. So maybe I'm I'm curious of your background with weights. Like, did you at some point train with them yourself, work the athletes you were working with? Was there a, a breaking mm-hmm. point where you're like, okay, like, I just don't think this is a good idea anymore. Let's go a different direction. Could you share with me a little bit about your background with that? Yeah, I mean, it was like in last year's of high school where, you know, people, um, some weights started getting in, in put into our high school. Um, and you know, I could, I, I, the first time I could dunk a basketball, I was five foot eight. I was 15 years old. I had trained myself for a year to figure out how to do it and had nothing to do with being in a weight room. And I was just jumping off boxes and all these other things that was fun and eventually figured out how to do it. And, um, then, you know, it's like, oh, these guys are lifting weights and, um, I wanted to play football. My dad, because I was already playing hockey, didn't want me playing two contact sports. And I got, you know, started squatting. And so it's the first time you have a bar on your back. I mean, it felt literally physically terrible. And uh, in six weeks, I couldn't dunk a basketball anymore. I was like, screw this. This isn't working. And I just literally stopped doing it. And, you know, it took about another month and the stretch reflex stuff started coming back. And I obviously could do it again. And back then, it was like nobody was forcing you to do it. And so everything was instinctual. You were doing things that you knew like made you faster, made you jump higher. And knowing that I needed to, you know, do those things and that especially the jumping part, I needed to do that moving, not standing still. I mean, you can use 
basic types of uh, a barbell, especially if you just stick to a front squat instead of a back squat, and you'll um, initially get some improvements in people standing vert. That'll eventually plateau. But the problem is it's going to have a negative impact on their vertical when they're moving because they're completely opposite physiologically. One's concentric muscle base. The other is eccentric tendon based. Again, these type of things aren't debatable if you understand the physiology of them. So that, you know, from a leg standpoint, um, obviously we got exposed to leg presses and deadlifts and all the other stuff. None of that was making me run faster. None of it was making me jump higher. In fact, it was doing the opposite. And we didn't have, you know, in our era, we didn't have soft tissue injuries like this, like you see today. And I never understood it until, you know, 20 years later, when you actually figure out what's happening to a human body, when we mutate it, which is what we're doing through compressionary forces, like conventional weightlifting, you're growing muscles laterally immediately that have to transmit forces longitudinally. They're opposites. And so when you ballistically load them, of course, there's a problem. And people that don't want to believe this, you need to start studying the work of Walter Herzog out of University of Alberta in Canada. I mean, because he's literally proven that this is a fact. At this point, if you're ignoring it, you know, you're doing that out of your own ego, because you're sticking to a system that everybody got sold, that this is improving athletic ability. Well, where? Where is the standing squat improving sprinting and, and, and the explosionary factors that happen because of eccentric uh, abilities. It, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Uh, when you flash forward to like uh, bench pressing, I mean, I ended up tearing the labrum in my shoulder doing that. And it's not like my labrum got torn, you know, doing anything else. I knew exactly when it happened uh, and how it happened. And again, they'll go, okay, well, your form isn't perfect or this isn't. Well, if a system is relying on your form being perfect to work, that's flawed from the out- outset. But if you start thinking about what weights do and, and like the idea that you can grow muscle, you don't grow muscle the way it's conventionally thought. And by that, I mean, when we are under compressionary force, we'll tear the surface area of the muscle, we suck fluid in, and it, the muscle basically blows up, you know, radially and laterally, as we just, as I just said, um, and it swells. That's that pump feeling you get. But it's a, in terms of saying that you're therefore going to transmit um, the necessary forces you need to have to run and jump properly. That's just not true. Um, and again, you're growing a muscle in the wrong direction. So for me, it became, okay, well, I knew instinctually it didn't feel good. And I relied on things that made me, you know, feel, feel good on the, on the ice or in the basketball floor. Um, especially in sprinting and track and high jump and all the things that we did. And we played multiple sports which again, you're not seeing people to able to do anymore. So my background from it, obviously, and then seeing like firsthand, like guys that were in the weight room were never the best players. They just weren't. And they were hurt so much. And nowadays, now, when you look at the soft tissue epidemic we have, and you're talking about your own experience with track athletes and, oh, they're out there and they get hurt, they go to rehab and they come back and they're PR. Well, of course they are. And, and it's not because they had time off to get the adaptations that they got. They actually had time off from the things that were negatively impacting their ability to produce power and displace their body in sprinting and jumping. And it's very simple to prove now. So when you do rehab type exercises, that force uh, increases in proprioception. And proprioception is, is a huge component of human movement. Our feet are the only thing in contact with the ground. 
So the ability of understanding how to produce power and propel my own body weight at a higher velocity is so imperative to, to movement. And I think that, that what's happened in the U.S. especially is because we don't have a governing body, a science body that says that, hey, this is the way you have to train a human body. It ends up being everybody's philosophy. Well, we're really trying to change that. Like if there isn't some scientific principle of what we're doing and we can't prove that it's going to have a positive impact on our athletes. Well, I'm not going to use it. Yeah. What, what you're saying, it makes me think a lot about like dosage. Uh, I think Tony Holler, mm -hmm. sprint coach who's been on the show talks about like anything in a high enough dose will kill you. <laughs> um, and, mm -hmm. but I think in athletically speaking, I, I think about the different dosages of different things in the program. And I think what a mm -hmm. lot of the strength community has gravitated towards is, um, taking the doses of the, the power lifts and those things and just, and just dosing them a lot less is I think a constructive direction that people have gone and not doing, mm -hmm. if I look at some like high school, you look at like a random, like high school football lifting program and it's insane. Like the amount of volume that of these kids and still yeah. growing athletes are expected to do i i'm just i'll be showing a worksheet that some high school had to do and i'm just like shaking my head this is crazy uh but it makes me think mm -hmm. about well what about um like even just just free motion in any athletic movement just playing basketball the body can handle mm -hmm. a lot of that because there's a lot of di it's it's mm -hmm. it's diverse movement it's, it's explosive it's free energy return mm -hmm. like you can handle a lot mm -hmm. more of playing your sport and of course there is a limit with that too versus like other things on the training table and i just think about uh, i guess i think about the direction you've gone where well if this thing like power lifting let's just say has the potential mm -hmm. to become a negative once you really get, get going mm -hmm. with it at some point like why not just let's just take it out entirely i think that's a hard step for some people to make like i think that that's a that's a difficult well it is but and i understand that but i'll give you an example so in 2012 the company called PVM out of South Africa contracted us to help them train the Toyota Cheetahs. The Cheetahs were one of the Super 15 rugby teams, and they had sent home 11 players from the Super 15 tournament the previous year um, and obviously had a terrible tournament. And they knew they were going to lose their franchise rights and everything else if they didn't improve. So we, you know, I, they flew over. Uh, his name's Alfred Reeder, the director of the company, and his trainer, which is Neil du Duplessis. They spent two weeks with, weeks with us. And Neil has his master's in exercise science. He was a pro rugby player. He has lifted all his life. And in three days, figured it out. And it was like, once you exposed it to him, he's like, no, this makes sense. They took it back. They threw out all the Olympic lifting. They installed this system. Their injury rates dropped by 97%. They had one major injury the entire season. It was a guy that dove for a try, and the guy landed on his shoulder. They set the record for the fewest player minutes lost due to injury in the Super 15 tournament. They sent seven guys to the national team and made the playoffs for the first time in the team's history. So I understand where they're coming from, but it's a lack of knowledge. And it's also fear. You know, you think you've done something or done it a certain way and it's going to work. And so if I change, oh, my God. Well, wait a second. What if you're wrong? What if actually what you're doing is causing more injuries on your team? And that's easy to prove. Because let's say you're, you're to your argument that dosage. Okay, well, let's say we're doing some power cleans and initially we get a guy and he can be a little bit more explosive in a power clean movement. Well, power clean, remember, still involves that your feet are in constant contact with the ground unless you're going to jump at the end of it during the catch. But in the pull phase, you're in constant contact with the ground. So you're 
you're simply putting weight in people's arms where they don't use it running, jumping. Um, and you're getting a certain level of hip action. Okay, he, he, let's say for argument's sake now, he's getting more explosive in just that specific movement. Your only option now is to continue to go heavier and heavier. So now we're going to into a negative phase. And I'm not arguing the fact that if you initially lift weights, you're going to do things better where your feet are standing in constant contact with the ground. You will, but that will immediately plateau. It doesn't just keep going up and up. It will plateau and stop. And now what do you do? And you certainly, the heavier you're going to go, you're going to, you're going to hurt yourself. We don't have this unlimited capacity to avoid injury when we are under external load. Our body isn't built like that. We're 60% water. We're super sensitive to external loads being put on us. And it's simple to prove that as well. The back is an S curve. And so when you loan a, load a spine with a bar on it at C7, especially, and then you take into effect the lower doses of the spine and the amount of pressure that's creating, obviously you're at injury, uh, risk of injury, just doing that alone. And it's predominantly a back exercise, not a leg exercise. And because you have to load the heel, uh, to avoid the shear effect on the ACL, especially on your external or heavy uh, loads like that, you end up hypertraining the quads, not the posterior chain. And anybody saying that you're not using your posterior chain, you know, during sprinting, I mean, of course you are. So I think again, it's this: what's your knowledge base in the United States? What's our what's our qualification for being a trainer? I wanted to take a break from the show and briefly share with you the difference that performance herbalism can make for you. Several years ago, I had Logan Christopher, CEO of Lost Empire Herbs, on the show to talk about hypnosis and mental training for athletes. Uh, while talking to him, I realized he also had an herbalism company. So shortly thereafter, I used the Phoenix Formula, which was my first product I bought from them. I had great results with it, not only increasing my energy and decreasing my need for coffee and caffeine. But I also noticed that it was making an impact on my lifts and my weight room numbers. I was having a great training experience. Shortly thereafter, I also got into the shiliagit resin as well as other herbs. And I don't look at supplementation the same way. I'm a strong believer in what Logan and his company are doing in looking for a natural resource to boost human performance. If you want to check out the herbs that I use personally from Lost Empire Herbs, you can head to www.lostempireherbs.com slash just fly. There you can get 15% off your order and they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Definitely check them out. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, the, the thing that I, I guess that, that's coming together in my head, and this is where I, I look at the whole equation, is um, mm-hmm. in Bonderchuk's, uh, Anatoly Bonderchuk's mm-hmm. training pyramid, you have at the top the mm-hmm. highest, the, the competition exercise. What are you doing? Like you mentioned, you used to play mm-hmm. tennis, and you just weren't as good at that top-tier skill as those other players were, despite being better at some of the more core you know speed and power elements mm-hmm. and then there's the the sde uh, is the next one down which is like the, sp- the specific developmental this is closer in transfer and then you have spe mm-hmm. even further down in the transfer tier and then general exercises mm-hmm. and i think that just the mm-hmm. interesting thing with weightlifting um and mm-hmm. that i think about as per what you're saying and the exercises you utilize which i'd like to dig into is um, a typical barbell, like a powerlifting exercise, as Kirwan and Flat says, mm-hmm. I think is GP at best, uh, meaning it's that mm-hmm. like second highest tier of transfer to one's actual sport. And but innately, as I've worked with athletes and especially good ones, like world class performers, is they want to be really good at whatever they do. And so, if mm-hmm. you weights by nature are part of what you're doing, then you as the co- mm-hmm. the coach have to at some point kind of hold athletes back from 
being particularly good at a weightlifting exercise they want to be really good at just because they're they're athletes they want to be amazing at everything Mm -hmm. and like if i'm working with a world-class swimmer at some point extra weight on their squat and bench is not going to be beneficial to their outcome in fact the effort needed to go into that could be detrimental to the outcome and so well i think i would stop you right there and saying what possible reason would a swimmer ever squat for yeah, I mean, Ever. The, yeah, the uh, I, I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. The only time they're going to use their legs in any time is the push off. You never, in terms of diving in, you're you, from there, it's a kicking motion, and you're you're totally reliant on the biomechanical efficiency of your stroke and the squat. I've seen this firsthand because we've trained a ton of swimmers. I don't ever let them squat ever. ever. And we, what we do too is we we train the heck out of the initial start part of it. But that's a purely counter movement jump from there. So sure. again, how are you going to approach that? That's the only part that that applies to swimming. Yeah, I, I definitely. And the rest, I, you can't bulk them up because they'll slow they'll slow down, right? You can't put that extra mass on them. Yep. Yeah, I don't want to. Yeah, make this into a big discussion on swimming, but I will say, I, yeah, the yeah. back squat and swimmers has not. I I'm definitely not for that particular combination. I don't no. think it leads no. to a helpful place in many many situations. So I hear you there. What what All I guess right. I'm trying to say is. Just the idea of giving athletes, it's like, look, if you want to have an exercise that you can get better at over a longer period of mm-hmm. time, that's going to have generally more beneficial outcomes. Um, I'm interested mm-hmm. in, like, I know the work that, uh, and let's just say this way, is if I'm not going to be doing heavy barbell loading, the, the mm-hmm. community of athletic performance will say, well, how do you improve? How do we work on force? How do we work on strength then? What if an athlete needs to get stronger right and and again you talked about the vertical the standing vertical versus running Mm -hmm. vertical and reactivity but when we're making that jump away from traditional barbells what um what is your answer to an athlete let's just say an athlete who just needs to get generally stronger like they don't have um they just aren't a good force producer what is your answer to um to that question how are you training that well, the first thing I would say is there's only three sports that require you to, to train maximal force, right? So that's uh, football, rugby, MMA, where I have to actually move another external load. Mm-hmm. The rest of the most sports require you to move your own body weight, right? Or they force you to like throw a set object. So baseball is a set weight, football, same thing. And so once that weight's set, the only thing I can improve then in a throwing motion, right, is the velocity of, of the arm because the mass is set. So I would say, okay, what are you specifically saying strength is? There's nine of them. Which one are you trying to improve? If your uh, concept is that I have to improve absolute strength, which is force applied in an unlimited amount of time, and that I have to have that to therefore improve, say, accelerating strength or speed strength or reactive strength, explosive strength. Well, obviously I would say I don't agree with you. So, and again, I would say you have to define what strength you're talking about. If you are saying, um, I've got this 170 pound kid that I'm going to turn into a 300 pound lineman. Well, then yeah, I guess we, the only thing we're going to be doing is force training where we're constantly pushing the envelope of you having to move an external load, but this person is not going to be somebody that ever runs fast or jumps high. Because we're going to constantly be pushing force. If we're trying to push movement uh, for people, we have to be pushing power. And what's their optimal power? So again, I think you have to answer that question and then you can, then you can quantify this. So for us, if we're just saying we're purely going to get you stronger, 
Well, we use specific machines for that, for concentric strength. We call it an accelerated isokinetic machine. It's geared like a bike and has an expanding fan blade. So there's very little weight load to you. And it's predominantly a concentric muscle-based um, device. It specifically targets starting and accelerating strength as well as explosive strength and rate of force um, development concentrically. And then we use another device that's, you know, based on the old supercats that were designed, but it has a movable arm. So now you can train people in a cyclical movement that is very similar to how they run and jump. Now, if you want to just stand still and do a basic squat movement, well, you can do that. And we can do that as well. And we do do it, but we do it in the context of where it's needed. I'm going to need to be able to have that type of level of ability to produce a certain level of force to move an external object as a lineman in football. But he also has to be able to move very quickly within a short space. So we're going to train it in the context that it's used. In rugby, for instance, the scrum is 2% of the game. So I'm not going to spend the entire training platform of a, you know, for, or a, guy, a guy up front in rugby any more than he's going to actually need it because he has to run the rest of the time. So it's a complicated you know, answer. With, uh, I had this question, I think, way in the back for you. Uh, and I do want to talk about mm. just like the, com- the combining of the balance with, um, mm-hmm. with the strength because mm-hmm. I, I find that really intriguing and I like to get into that. But mm-hmm. people who don't have like the machines or like you, you said, it kind of started mm-hmm. the old super cat mm-hmm. and you have the way that you have the machines mm-hmm. designed now. If someone doesn't have the mm-hmm. machines, I mean, barbells and mm-hmm. dumbbells and those things are usually the easiest thing. It's, it's, they're, they're everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Like, if you didn't have mm-hmm. your machines, what approach would you take to just general strength and force development for athletes? So then again, because mo- most of sports requires you to be moving, um, I would be doing a lot of uh, loaded body weight exercises in movement. So plyometric ball throws that requires the entire body to do them. And I would do high, higher volumes of these. Um, really focusing on the skill development of your, of your sports. And when you're doing like body movement exercises, such as footwork drills, and um, if you're going to use foam hurdles, things like that, where you're jumping over things and you can literally come up with things that you can use in your own uh, yard, anything that you can jump over repeatedly, because the more you jump on it, you're going to start loading that better eccentrically and starting to use that energy better. Um, from a pure, just concentric, you know, strength standpoint, you're going to use, again, if you're using, um, your body weight, obviously you're not going to, um, improve the ability to move an external load unless you actually move external loads. So why, when you talk about farm boy strength, right. And you talk about guys that have that, well, have you ever tried to bale hay in your life? Mm-hmm. Oh my God, it's so hard. Right. And so you learn like to do it more efficiently, the more you do it, just because you're killing yourself to try to do it when you start. And what I would be doing is like, you know, I'd rather a guy was flipping tires than than back squatting. He's going to get way more explosive out of something like that than he's going to get out of out of damaging his body doing a conventional barbell route. Uh, so again, just finding things where I have to move an external load. I mean, that's going to improve your strength, your power, all those type of things as opposed to just one, just pure force yeah. is saying that you're just going to improve force and it's going to increase power. That's not true. They're inversely related. Yeah. Like, um, Rafe Kelly, who is uh, really big in the, the parkour space, like a lot of motor learning stuff. 
just kind of sociology mm-hmm. and how we evolved into moving right. creatures that we are now talks about the idea of training mm-hmm. at the highest level of complexity. Like, like you said, if I could get strength from flipping tires and bailing hay, that gives me all these mm-hmm. other cool things. Like, why am I going to, and I have a limited amount of time. Why am I going to do, choose a squat instead? And like, I think you'd said it back in the beginning too. I mean, athletes aren't the same athletes they used to be right now. It's just play the sport. Mm-hmm. And then people are in the weight room versus like you grew up in Canada and it, like, right. Like you're doing like all these other things and you're doing, you're becoming doing all these other very robust human things and then playing sports versus now it's just play sports, get really specialized. Um, hopefully your coach is good from a technical acquisition perspective and then lift a bunch of weights and it just doesn't mm-hmm. yield the same type of athlete. And so, but anyways, just to, with the coordination thing, I, yeah. that's where I look at the work that you do. Um, and so, If you have anything else to say, um, I'll let you start with that. But I look at like doing a like a split squat on a balance disc that is loaded, like you're loading it with like a Mm -hmm. like a like a super cat loading or something like that. But but basically where there's just a little bit more coordination involved in the system. Mm -hmm. And so could you share a little bit about like how you approach combining balance with strength? Uh, Because, again, so many people, I think, will hear balance and just think, oh, you're just balancing on a ball. You just kind of. And again, not that that doesn't no. give an athlete something that's useful at a certain point, but how do you progress that with power? Well, so balance is so important, right? Because the, again, a human only can produce maximum power at certain joint angles. And so you have to align your body properly. And that can be seen in so many different ways. And that's where I've been really fortunate to learn from people like Rakovetsky and other people that understood like how the spine worked and what the importance of the foot was in terms of the proprioception that it gave the body. So it's basically telling your body, like, look, this is what I need to do to be able to do what you're asking me to do. And so we'll incorporate a balance element into almost all the strength work we do. And it starts out from a simple standpoint of balancing on discs or slant boards or pipes and stuff. But then the balance disc will use those in a standing squat movement because now the foot becomes like a hand that can grip something. Mm -hmm. And remember, the foot is so important because it's a suspension system that the rest of the body has to stretch against. And the foot has flex as well. But you, without that being a, having you know, a stability uh, factor to it, you're just, you, there's no way to sprint at a high level or jump at a high level. You're never going to do it. Um, so it's constantly trying to progress that. And I don't think that people understand that the importance that you're, what balance is. Balance means that you can keep your body in a centered position, no matter how it's challenged. And so you have to activate all these different muscle groups to be able to do that. And it involves the spine, it involves the hips, it involves everything. And so that's why we get such dramatic improvements in people's vertical and things like that right from the get-go. Because not only are you training the stretch reflex, but you're also training so many other things that are missed. Like, how can someone sit there and say that a squat, power clean, and bench press is adequate to train for sports? It's missing so many of the athletic components, and it's only addressing a few of the strength components, certainly not all of them, and not the ones that are dominant in, in human movement. So balance is, is a huge part of, uh, of being a great athlete because the best athletes control their limbs and space and every range of motion and plane of movement better than other people. I, think I don't about- know how you can argue that. 
Yeah, uh, just quickly too, I know you get really good results with the jumping. That's something I've heard mm. from multiple people about that kind of system. I mean, it's tell me a little mm. bit about some of the like the jump results. And I'm assuming too, these come from people with people who have been on probably more traditional resistance training programs a lot. They get into your system. Um, just tell me a little bit about that. Well, like last year's combine, like all, every one of our linemen went up six inches inside six weeks. I think it was that all we had them for. Now, remember when they're doing constant force training and like this, they're, they're losing so much of their elastic stretch reflex and eccentric because the higher that force training goes on, on the concentric, concentric, then you're losing it from an eccentric capacity. And so once we start training that back into them, then a lot of it is just reverting them back to what their natural state was. But everyone knows like that people go into college, you know, weightlifting programs and they don't come out faster. They come out slower. I mean, this is a common uh, understood thing. So for us, if we're just, and you got to change, you know, you got to quantify, like, are you developing an athlete from the time they're 12 um, and developing their vertical? Or are you taking a college football player who's been in a weight system for three years and kind of undoing the damage that's been done and restoring, you know, their athletic ability? I mean, that's more that was done with Troy Palomaro. I mean, he's a freak. And so once you expose him to the proper, methods then his vert jumped massively um and again you, you have to quantify where that improvement is is this vertical standing or is it moving yeah. is there polar opposites and how we do it uh and we'll improve both but it's where where do you where do you need them the most most of the time you're moving so and i think that people don't understand that having just a standing vert you know and the fact that this is not going to um, correlate to a moving ver vertical, but we see massive changes. And now that we're actually able to specify the loads we need, um, because of the, the technology platform that we're developing and you can actually train people on what their awful power should be. Um, you're getting, you know, any upwards of almost 20 centimeter imp improvements in people in under six weeks, that's a massive change. Now we had always been able to get about six inches and obviously there's limits to this. Like we have to have some level of genetics to this and mm -hmm. it's a jumping and you're moving is a super coordinated act, you know? And like we were talking about off air when I was talking, um, to Zach Levine about, you know, how he had learned to jump so well because his dad was so instrumental in how he trained him and was not allowing him in a conventional weight room. And when you look back at the videos and stuff he did, it was super intuitive and, and way ahead of what most people were doing. But Zach reminded me of the fact that, yeah, I did all that. But then every day after practice, I was in the gym dunking with my best friend, Perion. And then you flash forward and you've got a two-time NBA dunk champion. Well, jumpers need to jump. Mm -hmm. Sprinters need to sprint. And guys that are doing it more are going to improve more. And it, it brings up the point you already said earlier is that we're not doing these things anymore with our kids. Um, I, you know, all the sports I played, it was normal. So our travel seasons and our travel teams, you know, it was hockey and baseball. Well, hockey started in the, in the fall and it ended, you know, mid spring and baseball travel started and you did that all summer. But in high school, then I also was playing volleyball in the fall. I was also playing basketball in the, in the spring. So you're constantly jumping, you're running in volleyball, your lateral movement, the lateral movements there as well. Same with basketball. Now, hockey, of course, it, it trains it. And hockey gave me such an advantage because learning to skate so well, 
it develops so much hip strength in me. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that we, you know, is really missed in, in sports performance training is the role of the hips. And you see guys using bands around their legs. Well, it's just not fast enough and you can't load it quick enough or explosively. Enough. Um, and that I think is one of the ways that we've really not only been able to improve athletic ability from a standpoint of lateral movement, change of direction, um, but it also is such a massive help in injury prevention because the hips help stabilize the knee. So do the feet. It's still a, a lever, right? So the foot, you know, below the knee, the hip above it, if those things are both weak, well, obviously the knee's under a lot more strain from a stability standpoint. And again, I don't know how anyone argues that. Saying that they're training it properly, I mean, I, you, there are people that are doing that for sure. But when you look at the conventional barbell system, they're not addressing. Yeah, I, I when I think about balance too, I think about um, there's a video or speaking of dunking too. It it was uh, mm. Zach's, um, you know, the the counterpart in the dunk contest, Aaron Gordon, and there was some dunk when he oh, was yeah. doing like a 360. Someone threw it off the backboard or something crazy, and he's spinning mm. in to do this dunk, and you can just see right. each of the two legs have a different job, and the front leg, the block leg, yes. is spinning it's internally rotating 180 degrees his heel either Mm -hmm. doesn't touch or just maybe taps the ground real quick and i mean to Mm -hmm. me i see balance as there is definitely a component of balance in that motion like you can't say there's not because it's it's a few hundredths of a second i have to find the arches of the Mm -hmm. foot on the ground balance on them enough to be able to route immense power through my skeletal structure into the ground and so again i just think when people think balance they just think just wobbling around on like a surfboard or something. No. And it's, it's not that it's totally no. different. No, it's totally different. And like, to your point, like what the person's doing, right. Well, the reason their heel hits is because we're in, we're in horizontal movement. Right. And I have to actually take that horizontal m- movement and convert it vertically. So the heel actually stops my forward momentum. And then I roll over it into the ball of my foot which is where I then jump front and propel myself vertically. And I have to do that all with a coordinated movement with my arms because the arms play such a huge role in determining where that direction of of my vertical is going. Um, And it's one of the things that isn't addressed enough because the arm arm part of it uh, is so instrumental in terms of lifting yourself. And as the pecs will get stretched out and now they're going to, the hand's going to reach down to mid-level of your hip and literally lift your mass up the second your foot's pushing. So it's the coordination of those movements at a specific moment in time. And so if you don't have the balance to be able to control yourself at slow speeds, you're sure as heck not going to be able to do it at high ones. And so they have to be constantly challenged. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I, I love the idea. You can't do it fast until you can do it slow. I, I was no, thinking... That's old, that's old martial arts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that yeah. too, I've, I've been intrigued by just the martial arts and what the martial arts can offer just the athletic performance community as well. I, mm-hmm. I wanted, amazing. Yeah. I wanted to touch on you being a, a skater though, doing so much skating. And then you were, you were athletic though, mm-hmm. too. You were able to dunk at, at five, eight and, and do so for mm-hmm. a long period of time. And just thinking about, I don't think we consider often enough what one sport offers another. And you talked about hockey mm-hmm. and the hips. And I've heard of, other athletic performance coaches saying, yeah, like the hockey kids are oftentimes pretty fast on the ground. Like there's something that, or just when they're running on the land. And Mm -hmm. I think about the same thing too. I had a coach, uh, Sheldon Dunlap on a long time ago, and he was Mm -hmm. talking about how when he was skateboarding, 
that that actually really mm-hmm. helped his long jump and he felt it and how it showed up. And I've actually been skateboarding mm-hmm. a little myself just for fun lately, just to kind of feel how right. that, and it, it's, it's this interesting combination of there is balance there, but you can, it's a very dynamic, like you feel the muscles getting worked explosively and athletically. It's not like I'm just sitting there stand, I mean, just standing in place. Like there's a lot of velocity mm-hmm. behind this. And so I think about just the, well, you have to, you, to your point, right. You're moving. So when you change direction or any direction, whether it's lateral or going vertically, your body is going to load itself eccentrically, bring itself to a stop and then propel itself concentrically in another direction. And so there's cre- three components of that muscle action that have to be addressed. The eccentric into an isometric that then goes to a concentric. Because remember any plyometric movement, it actually comes to an isometric very briefly and then uh, recoils itself. You know, you think about stretching an elastic band out with your hand and then firing. If you stretch it out slow, it'll contract back. But if you stretch it out fast, it, it comes back 10 times as fast. But there's still that isometric stopping. And so the best athlete can load that thing ballistically very quickly, bring it to a stop and not lose their balance. The worst athlete will just fall off, fall over. They just can't do it. And so what we, we know for sure is that athletic ability is a trained skill. No different than playing a piano. And so is human movement. Now, is everyone going to be Usain Bolt? No. But everyone can improve for sure. And in physical contact sports, that's why we had so much success with the cheetahs in rugby is because when you improved athletic ability, along with understanding that we had to have the right hitting angles because these guys didn't know how to hit properly. Um, And they had the right physical training. So you knew that they, when they had to have maximum force, they had it, but they could also produce the optimal amount of power in their movement. Well, the best athlete can not only initiate contact better, he can also avoid it better. So that was one of the major reasons our injury rates dropped so, so much besides the fact that we weren't negatively impacting their soft tissue so much. Yeah, I, that I've, makes sense. Yeah, I've I've seen it happen as mm-hmm. well. I remember one of the first big shifts um, in my time as a strength and conditioning coach, where that was my full time job. Is and it, this was with a non, you know, this was a, with a non contact or collision sport. This was with the men's tennis group. Is when I made a conscious effort mm-hmm. to we probably took about a third of the barbell training out of the program and replaced it with just isometric holds and the injury. Oh rates, yeah. It makes a big difference. Oh yeah. Just body weight isometric holds. The injury rates just dropped like a rock. Oh. I mean, it was, it was real. And again, maybe part of that and was I, luck on the year, but it was undeniable that that was. No, 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 man. It's not it. luck. I, it's just what I told you. Like in human movement, what they don't have is that capacity capacity in an eccentric range to bring it to a stop. So movement, when you're moving and you change directionally, you have to load it eccentrically and it has to stop isometrically. So when you teach the brain that, hey, wait a second, I've got to stop there. Oh, okay. I was, I was taught that when I was six in figure skating because you had to hold these bent knee positions and you had to literally propel yourself all the way across the length of the rink to pass your, your exam. And so I didn't know I was doing that. It was just a nasty test we had to pass. <laughs> Interesting. So you had to be in a squatted, a squatted position. You had to kind of hold as you were skating or how, tell me about that. Testing. Oh yeah. So it was one leg. You had to bend down on one leg, extend the opposite leg out in front of you. And you had to hold that from <laughs> one goal line to the other. That's awesome. It's kind of like, it was, it was not easy, man. 
Speaking of training uh, at the highest level of complexity, right? Like, I mean, I do think that mm-hmm. uh, thankfully a lot of strength and conditioning is getting into at least more of like, let's do more single leg training than powerlifting derivatives, right? But I think about even mm-hmm. a, a pistol squat, which is definitely more mm-hmm. functional than uh, or, or close to human body, how the human body works in sport right. compared to say a back squat, but you're right. doing a pistol squat on a blade and, <laughs> yep. and, and holding that isometrically across. I just think about training at the highest level of complexity, right? And you um right. you have you have all that going and that's your training base like that's that's training i think people don't look at that and think that's training but that is training and i think that's awesome oh for sure it is because and the, it's an isometric hold but you know that you didn't even know you could do and how would your brain know how, how would you learn to do it unless you're actually put in the position to force yourself to do it we had tons of those done in ballet like you had to hold and remember like the foot is so instrumental in being and when you say balance i think you we need to make a, a you know a point about where the balance is found. The ba- balance is found in the forefront of the foot because the toes will act like fingers and they will literally grab the ground and ma- to maintain your body position. Well, when you look at all the major lifts that are done, you have to actually load your heel. Any back squat, you have to do that just to avoid the shear effect on your ACL. That is not teaching people to balance properly. You're actually balancing improperly and you're activating wrong muscle chains in terms of trying to then resist force because when you're trying to resist someone pushing you you load the forefront of your foot not your heel the second you load your heel you're going to get pushed over by somebody that's 50 pounds smaller than you and it's just the way it works so you have to understand like what's functional strength then because you're going to say well a squat and a back squat's a functional movement i'm going to argue it's not you're actually training your body to do something it never does you don't load your heel to try to resist somebody. And if you do and you get hit, you're going to blow your knee out because your leg has nowhere to go then. On the ball of the foot, it can pivot. Heel, it can't. It's not going to do that. So balance is super important because it teaches you where your strength is. That's the biggest, most important thing is where do I have to line myself? Because for sure, it's in the ball of your foot. You sprint in the ball of your foot. The only time the heel's in contact with you're in the ground is like I said, when you're trying to change a certain direction, and that's vertically. When I change lateral movement, it's all out of the ball of the foot. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm glad that you said that there is there is times when I definitely, like if I'm doing bounding or jumping, I do make use of the heel, but mm-hmm. you have to transition Correct. well to the ball of the foot. Like people who transition Correct. too slowly are going to be too much breaking forces and um, they're going to have some Correct. issues. Uh, one thing that um, I heard Marv Marinovich say this, uh, and I, I really liked mm-hmm. it, and I think about this in light of balance too, is, and I thought about this in light of like uh, PVC pipes or like the circular balance discs, because I wanted to get mm-hmm. into this with squatting. Like, what are your feet on when you squat? Because I think that, uh, again, with complexity and, and those types of things is really mm-hmm. interesting. Is he had said something like, where having a, um, like something on the foot, like a balance disc, it lets your body pick the, the path it wants to go versus if your foot is flat on the ground mm. and static and you're squatting on that static foot, mm. you have less degrees of freedom, less options. And I remember back when I was, um, yeah, I was a high jumper and my, my best year, I, uh, I had a high jump six, eight the year before. And that, those years were just a train mm. wreck when I was 20. It was, everything was a train wreck in that year. I wasn't doing enough sprinting. I wasn't training mm. at high velocity fast enough. But one of the things I mm. did do the next year is I actually was squatting more one time a week, but how mm. I, my body, um, like wanted to squat. And this is always the interesting thing is I feel like I didn't have a coach teaching me this stuff. I just did intuitively what felt right. 
And it was always like mm-hmm. kind of a narrow stance. And I kind of felt my body just shift into the balls of my feet towards the bottom, probably was getting right. a lot of internal rotation, a lot of, and versus then when I quote unquote squatted the, or whatever the right way as per, you know, the certifying body said mm-hmm. that was, that was, oh, and then I later I pushed my knees out and squatted through my heels and noticed mm-hmm. a pretty severe decrease in reactivity. And, but ever since that, like I just have been thinking about, the body getting to pick, like what does the body want to do in in a squatting motion, and really respecting that versus mm-hmm. this idea of oh I need to coach it, I need to coach someone to do this when they have a bar on their mm-hmm. back, right? That fits with powerlifting. So, anyways, tell me what you think about that idea, and then like and balance discs, and what are the feet on when we squat? Uh, tell me a little bit about the, the interaction of the foot with the ground, and and the idea of the body getting to using the intelligence of the body. Well, so what you're doing, what you're really speaking about is your body's going to try to find the most efficient way it can. Like our brain's wired that way. That's why we can walk so far, right? Because we're, we spend so little energy in terms of when we just oscillate with our shoulders and allow our hips to, to oscillate with it, we don't have to spend a lot of energy. So when you're talking about like, you know, just trying letting your body figure out the best way, I mean, you're taught to load your heel uh, with a squat for a specific reason, you would never choose to do that because you can feel instinctually the second you do it, you're in a very awkward position and don't feel in it like you're, you're powerful. When you, when you load the front forefront of your foot, that actually activates your posterior chain, hamstring, glutes, all those things. You can't activate those properly with your heel loaded. It's not possible because the center of your mass shifts. Remember that. And we, to, produce mass maximum power we have to align ourselves a certain way we don't just have strength in any position that's just not true we have optimal power position and you can almost always see a relationship from a 90 degree angle that way whether it's from the toe to the knee or the knee to the shoulder um so to your point what it is is that you're allowing your body then to figure out its most powerful position on its own instead of instructing it Mm. and we instinctually it's like we were talking about earlier it's farm boy strength the more we have to bail hay, the more efficient we're going to find the way to do it. So we spend less energy doing it. That's just reality. And when there's a guy out of Arkansas who did this um, paper in terms of throw, showing that these guys, you know, 50 years ago were just throwing gas as baseball pitchers and they were never hurt. But these were kids that all came off the farm. Well, what do they do? They bail hay. Mm-hmm. Like that's a throwing motion. And so your body's finding its most efficient way to do it. And that's really what Marv was speaking about. Um, but in terms of the functionality of it, um, you know, in terms of finding your power and strength, that's in the forefront of your foot. It's not in your heel. It doesn't matter how someone wants to debate that. That's just factually incorrect if you think that it's in your heel. It, it, it's not possible, actually. So, and, and again, you can, you can go through all the muscle chains and the sequences of how they activate, and, or you can just do it yourself. Because when you load the forefront of your heel, now your knee will actually roll forward over your toe, right? Your pelvis and your hips will actually uh, roll back. And that lengthens your hamstring, right? Right away, because your knee rolled forward, your pelvis rolled back. So that puts your hamstring on stretch. If your knee, which you're not allowed to do on a conventional squat, right? They actually teach you not to put your knee over your toe, bring your knee back because they, it, now the hamstring is not on stretch. It actually shuts it off. And the pelvis and the spine are in the wrong angle to produce maximal power. So his, his point was, is like, if you were in a, in a fight, you're not going to sit in your heels. 
you're going to be in the balls of your feet where you can actually push and move your own body mass uh, out of a certain position so you don't get hit. If you sit in your heels, you're just a sitting duck. Yeah. And I really think that what, what you're, you know, the point you're trying to get at is where is this, that position that a human has where he can control his movement the best? Because it's going to start, there's only two ways to control your movement. It's out of your feet and out of your arms. I mean, if I reach, you know, if we're standing in front of each other and I reach for you, my body follows it. So our limbs really dictate where, where we go. And, and so does our head, you know, when we're working, uh, with this tennis player, I work with Brandon Nakashima, um, uh, six weeks ago or whatever. And I got the opportunity to be around Jose Garris and he's a coach with the USDA and great tennis player himself. And he just reminded me of something really important. And that's something that was taught in ballet when from the time you're first to do it. And that's the stillness of your head and how important that was in the shot making. That if your head's moving, it moves your body with it. So it's going to move you away from your contact point in terms of your, um, you know, when you're swinging a forehand or a backhand. Boy, is he right. I mean, that's one of the things we really talk about when we're talking about baseball hitting. You can't have a ton of head movement, you got objects being thrown at you at 100 miles an hour. So, for your eyes to be able to absorb that and, and where it's going and create you know a swing that can impact that, obviously, you need to, to minimize your head movement or you won't be able to adjust. Yeah, I've, so that's truly another point of the balance you know that we're talking about. Yeah, I've heard, um. I think it was Cal Dietz who was had a, did a presentation mm-hmm. where he had an owl. He showed like an owl, and if you, uh, I think it was his presentation. But if you um, had mm-hmm. the owl looking at the screen or something, and you move the owl's body around, its head would just be locked on. It was it was ama- it was almost like hypnotic mm-hmm. how good this thing was at keeping its head oh, yeah. in that position. Um, unbelievable. Uh, so with the well, the- nature nature provides that for us, right? Like, and that's, that's the, that's the, that's maybe the best thing you just said is because if we, like, when you look at animals and, and how they move, um, it, like look at a leopard where a leopard is one of the fastest things on the planet, right. On, on, in terms of sprinting, it's never lifted a weight in its life. Mm-hmm. So clearly we can, we can develop as a species without necessarily this external stimuli and pushing the velocity of our movement to its highest range. It, you know, that, that's an important way of trying to improve our movement capacities. But if you just study how a leopard runs, it'll tell you a lot about how a human needs to sprint. And that's where, you know, I think our strength community, I've said this before, you know, if you were to make a football team out of, out of animals, well, you, all your linemen would be elephants. Mm-hmm. And remember, elephants are very fast. They're very agile. Besides the fact when they're angry, how mean they are. And they're super aggressive. But all your linebackers and your fullbacks, they'd be lions. They're fast, super powerful, and strong. And all your receivers and cornerbacks would be, would be leopards or cheetahs. Well, you can't turn a leopard into an elephant, and you sure as hell can't turn an elephant into a, into a leopard or a cheetah. And that's essentially what we're doing in the strength business these days. We're trying to take this cheetah and just bulk them up and turn them into an elephant. It's never going to work. And the mass, remember, you have to carry that mass. So if I throw 100 pounds in the trunk of a car and it's got an eight-cylinder engine, well, I'm slowing the, the car down. There's no debating that. What we're, you know, been selling to everybody is that while I'm putting all this mass on, you know, I'm making you faster. Okay, we'll prove it. 
It is. If, and again, back to injuries, it's an, another analogy I've used before. If you take the mass of a door, it has three hinges generally, those being similar in the knee, it's like your, your ligaments, your ACL, your uh, PCL, your MCL, those type of things. If I increase the mass of the door, there's more strain on the ligament and the hinges. And now if I move that door very quickly and swing it open and shut while it's now destabilized, well, of course, I'm going to tear a hinge off of it. How do, how do we as humans think we're any different? And Wait. saying that you're going to lift weights and you increase the tensile strength of, of ligaments, again, that's patently false. That, that, that was proven 40 years ago by the Russians that can improve and reduce injuries. And you want to improve the tensile strength of the ligaments. It's through ballistic loading. And that's very similar to what we do. When you so again, are... I've just tried to learn. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, I, I was going to ask with, yeah. with that. Um, so what are the basic interactions of the foot and or the surfaces that you'll have athletes perform like jumps or lifting type movements on? I mean, it's, there's the discs, um, like a slant board, like a slanted board. Tell me about the way mm-hmm. you set up the foot to interface the ground uh, as they're going through the resistance training. Well, the slant board, just because of the different angles that the foot will have contact with a flat surface will change. Uh, especially with lateral movement, change of direction drills. Um, the balance disc is literally so that the second they're, they're off center, they have to find their, their center of movement, um, or center of balance, sorry. Um, the balance pipes we use, it, it obviously affects balance, but it's more in terms of the stretch and the, in the entire gastroc um, complex, and also the ability of the you know, forefront to grip the pipe and maintain your position on there. When we start doing jump movements and stuff, like the jump movements I, I typically do on, uh, on flat surfaces, if we do lateral movement things, we'll do them off low boxes and do a lot, a lot of lateral plyo movements back and forth um, so that you're getting that plyometric load and you're training your brain to do it. Um, we will change the angle that the legs on, for instance, on the, on a, the super counter plyo we use, the, we use a ramp and we're able to uh, change the angle that the foot's on. So I think it's incredibly important that you challenge it in every possible way you can think of. When, I, when you start doing ballistic type movements, you got to be careful in terms of what surface you're doing those on then. Um, you know, I know a lot of people like to train the sand, but that's really a concentric muscle movement because the sand obviously moves the minute you push on it. And so it ends up being more concentric based. Whereas hard surfaces that we typically play on are more eccentric based. And it's not that there's no role of ever using the sand, just understand what you're getting out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us, to your point, you're going to, you're going to constantly change the angle of, of where the foot is, you know, on the, the ISO machine we use, we'll put people on the balance disc while they're doing their jumping movement. Now they never come off the ground completely but their balance is constantly challenged through that entire range of motion, uh, eccentrically through the concentric motion. So obviously now you're recruiting and remember when you're challenging balance, that means you have to recruit more, more, uh, muscular fibers and neurons and everything else to achieve the task you're being asked to do. And that's what creates a superior athlete. Yeah. Every time I do, um, I've actually never really been able to use the discs, which uh, for people listening are just, it's mm. just like, uh, I mean, mm. I think there's a couple different kinds of them, right? There's one that's maybe like five mm-hmm. or six inches wide that more of your ball, your foot goes on. And, yeah, and then there's another one that's like a foot. Yeah. yeah. That your whole foot can go on, including like the heel. 
mm-hmm. there's a little ball mm-hmm. at the bottom that you can balance around. But doing even like doing PVC pipe stuff or semi-loaded PVC pipe work, which I've done, mm-hmm. it's like you feel the the muscles of your lower leg are just being taxed so much more oh, than, yeah. than if you were doing just your foot was flat on the ground. And people, again, that's why I think people say, oh, it's balance training. Well, the activation in your lower leg is through the roof, like compared and, and you're oh, yeah. putting that into a total body movement. And so that's where I just mm-hmm. think that, and the thing is that stuff to me, it doesn't make me sore. Um, when I did some of the, oh. like the Probot X workouts 20 years ago, it was, <laughs> it was like, I don't know, yeah. whatever routine I came up with, I was doing like some single leg, like squats with the, my, mm-hmm. I didn't have any balance discs really, but just doing like a roof at elevated split squat and holding like some water uh, jugs over my head mm-hmm. and doing some, yeah. even like some skater squats I was doing in there, but a lot of stuff with the balance ball. And I just noticed I wasn't, I was never really sore the next day from those kind of things. And I did feel like as well as helping out with like the foot, it's like your body gets to pick type thing. When your body gets to pick mm-hmm. the path, it's almost like the soreness comes when you're locked into when you're locked into a range and you have you can't wiggle your way out of it and then you're putting a muscle through the full range of motion. And to me that's just because well, um, Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'll finish. I didn't interrupt you. I thought you were done. Sorry. Oh yeah. No, I had an interesting transition of thought, but it, to me it was almost like No, but it brings up a great point. Like the, it, you're talking about delayed onset muscle syndrome. So DOMS is created from heavy eccentric loading, which our body never does. Think about it. Eccentric range, we either ballistically load it or we hold it isometrically. We never move it slowly under external load eccentrically. Never. Never happens. So if a person attacks me and he's trying to push me over, I immediately go into an eccentric range and isometrically try to stop him. And if I can't, then he overwhelms me. Right. So what happens with delayed onset muscle syndrome is that we are damaging the muscle tissue, as we talked about before, you're tearing it. And so the body has to repair itself. That's where the soreness comes from, like any other injury. And that the thing that's been sold is that this is therefore a positive part and a necessity of training for sports. I do not agree with that. And I think physiologically, you can easily prove that false. So without the soreness, and remember, if you have the soreness, now you're minimizing your training time. You can't maximize it. Like one of my jobs, you know, as a, in the fight business, as a conditioning coach is to make sure that my fighter is ready to box and train his fighting every day. His physical conditioning cannot interfere with that because if it does, we're going to have a negative result. We win our fights based on our fighting skill. And if I'm losing time in the ring or the octagon because I have to recover from delayed onset muscle syndrome, well, then I'm really causing a problem in camp because now you can't punch. You can't do all the things that are going to get us to win. And again, I know what the argument's going to be. Oh, you you know, there's going to be these positive adaptations from this. Well, what are they? I've just explained that the eccentric, when you load things like this, you're actually growing muscles the wrong way. And people are assuming that, therefore, we don't ever train maximal force. We do. And I train maximal force throughout the eccentric range, but I do it in a way where we're not going to damage the body. And they have to isometrically be able to resist loads that they could never do on on a conventional um, uh, weight system because you just simply get hurt. So we call it maximal strength recruitment. So for instance, if you were talking about, it's simple, it's simple to understand if it was just laying on your back, doing like a bench press type movement, 
So you will start lowering the, the arm that we have in eccentrically. And I'm going to force you to stop it isometrically. And I'm going to load it maximally from the back. We'll put weight on it, but then I'm going to push on it with more pressure. So it's more than you could possibly ever push concentrically. Because remember, you have to train the eccentric relationship at a 40% greater capacity than the concentric. That eliminates so many of these uh, injuries. And we have way more uh, ability uh, eccentrically to stop something than we can concentrically to push that load. And we will train that in three different ranges of motion isometrically. So now they can stop that way more than they could ever have stopped anything uh, under a conventional bar, because how would you do that? If you can lift 500 pounds and now I'm adding another 250 pounds of pressure, I'm going to break his back. But if you lay him down and invert him, uh, now you can really challenge that, whether it's the upper body or the lower. It's a super important point, man, because this whole system's belay, you know, based on recovering from delayed onset muscle syndrome. And it's like, our guys don't get that type of soreness. Our guys in their football training camps, they'd come back and I'm like, I understand we're not, I'm not in the ice bath every night. Well, you're in a weight room where you're conventionally tightening yourself up by definition. And now you have to go out and move ballistically, which requires the ability to stretch at high velocities, um, eccentrically they're opposites. So how are you, how are you, you know, how are you combating that? And I think that, I think that now, like now that we know, I mean, from a, just from a pure standpoint, how a human moves, how they produce power in movement and you understand what that is physiologically, then you have to ask yourself and you brought up Bondarchuk. Well, what was the name of this book? It's transfer of training. You have to ask yourself what you're doing that directly transforms or transfers into the performance of your athlete. Is like, it negative or is it positive? Yeah, hundred percent. I, that's interesting the way that you do the, the force overloading. Like, so you're basically, mm -hmm. instead of um, eccentric training where an athlete has like a, a super maximal load and they're lowering it really slowly, you would have them mm -hmm. go through the range of motion and then have like just um, short, like isometric overloads. Like they have to, they get in a position, mm -hmm. they have to hold it against a maximal resistance. Then you go into another position, mm -hmm. hold against, got it. So versus like, Correct. got it. That makes sense. I really like that. I really it almost mm -hmm. jives a little bit to me with, um, I had uh, Alex Natera has been on this show a few times, an Australian strength coach, and he has a system mm -hmm. where they use a lot of like you know, maximal isometric holds in a specific position, like go in a sprint specific position, right. hit a maximal isometric hold. I just think that's really athletic. And I know coaches who have gotten really good results, sprint results out of that. And I would definitely prefer that uh -huh. to, uh, I mean, just me personally, I've never really got a good benefit out of the super maximal slow lowering. I, I, I'm more of an elastic athlete. Because your body doesn't do it. Yeah, it's hey, yeah, just that always made more sense yeah. to me as feeling more athletic. So, uh, yeah, so mm -hmm. you and you're doing that in the super cats where an athlete's like on the like in a leg yes. press kind of position versus a, a loaded squat position. So their back's not loaded. It's kind of like a like a leg Never, because the, the, you couldn't you can't overload the leg like that by loading the spine that way. You're going to hurt them. And I mean, like I can we have enough video of it. It's easy to show like the, mat, the amount of loads that these guys are moving. Or resisting, sorry, isometrically, it's it's massive, and so like it's again, it becomes very hard for someone to sit there and debate. Like you've got a better way. Well, what is it? We have no injury risk, mm -hmm. and we have athletes. It's one of the simplest ways that we get guys to rehab properly from ACL surgeries. 
I mean, that's what I was hired to do, you know, with George St. Pierre is, is help him recover from his ACL. And he obviously fought and won 10 months. So I think that it's understanding a, what the muscle actions are. There's only three eccentric, isometric, concentric, what role do they play in movement? What role do they play in moving external loads? And then once you understand that, I think it gets really simple, actually. It's not that complex. Yeah. Yeah. And that's how we try to approach it. Yeah. Training shouldn't be too complicated. <laughs> no, man. No. Yeah. It's totally uh, agree with you. And then, and then you want to just keep challenging people and the skill side of it. You know, somebody that jumps seven feet, you're an extraordinarily coordinated athlete. You can't do that. You didn't learn to do that in the weight room. No. It's not the way it works. No. It's a coordinated jump action that has to happen simultaneously. Yeah, kind of like so, Zach, Zach Levine. I was always jumping as a kid, just trying to jump up the stairs, yeah. jump up and touch the rim, jump, you know, it's just right. continuous. Because it was fun. Yes. Yeah, I'd imagine <laughs> it was, too. It was it's, fun. It's fun. It sounds too like, they, and I, I would agree with this, like having an element of balance, like a, a disc or a pipe mm-hmm. or whatever, it, it is fun for an athlete. Like it's engaging for them to try to maintain their position versus the mm-hmm. only way you can overload is in a common system. It's you know, the only way you can overload is more weight. Or I, I think in more, as we're progressing, yeah. there is like use velocity based training and you know, what, how fast did you move the bar? And and that's awesome. But in a lot of situations, it's just well, th- the only way is the weight uh, and you can overload it via, via, you know, some of the foot requirements too. And with the balance elements. Right. But the, where, where this whole system is because now people are starting to go velocity, right? Okay. Well, again, we're back to power equation. Power, the equation is force times velocity. Force equation is mass times acceleration. So now that people are starting to figure out, well, in, first of all, in power, you have velocities. That means there's displacement. In force, that doesn't mean there's any displacement. In force, can you can keep rising in force if you just keep increasing the mass, even though the acceleration plummets. But when you talk about power, velocity is the dominating factor. And again, if you're moving any type of external object, that, that object's mass is set. So the only thing now option you have is the, is the velocity it's going to move at. And if people don't believe that that's the dominating factor, again, we've used this analogy tons of times before, but you take a, a gun and it shoots a bullet and it's 4,000 feet per second, has very little mass, but it'll blow a hole right through you. I take a bowling ball and it, it's 20,000 times the mass, but I throw it. Uh, you know, it's not even going to stub your toe. Well, you shoot that bowling ball out of a cannon. Well, and obviously now it's going to go through the wall of a house. So the velocity of the, of what you move that mass at is going to be the dominant factor always. Does that make sense? Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, to me, I think that mm. I, I just think a bias that can exist is it's mm. almost like we can make something better by doing it with weights. And then it's mm-hmm. in the sense it becomes. Um, people might mm-hmm. prioritize measuring a weight, a barbell speed, which mm-hmm. I, I do, I, I think is a good addition to mm-hmm. a weight room, but they would maybe mm-hmm. prioritize that over, hey, did your vertical go up? Did your reactive strength go up? Did you get faster? Like to me, mm-hmm. those are the original right. velocity-based things. Like just get some timing gates out. Did you run faster? That's pretty velocity-based with your body weight. But where, know, the, so. where, they, where the strength business is going to go is it's going to go to understanding that you have to increase the velocity, the load eccentrically. Yeah. Oh, that's I where it's going to go because do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. So it's not going to be your, it's going to understand that you have to t- 
train with what your optimal power loads are, that continuing to push maximum force is actually a negative on human movement. The only place it's a positive is when I'm actually trying to move an external load. The business is going to start to understand that the human only has to move his own body weight. So what's the best way to do that? I've got to be able to improve the velocity because my mass stays essentially the same. Yeah. But anyway, that's all my point to that was. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I know that I, some of the more advanced, like, or like the gym wear velocity measuring units, they get, um, mm. can get like the eccentric profile, whereas I think typically it was just how fast did the bar go up, which again, that's like standing vertical mm-hmm. strength. It's not as much reactive strength. So that I think it's definitely advanced itself over time. Um, I did have one other just last. Well, but we're, oh, about to, we're about to change that though, because we've been working on a technology platform for a decade that could measure all of that. And now we've been able to prove exactly what we've been saying. So that's a whole other topic for another day, but yeah, it's for sure in the eccentric and we can measure that for sure. Because remember the force plate, you can't do that. It doesn't tell you where the eccentric concentric changeover is. None of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I did want to talk to you about, so you mentioned uh, your, your, your background with dance. And I, I think about, I watched some of the mm-hmm. stuff with like the machines or like, uh, like a super cat type machine is there's a there's oftentimes like a rhythm to it and I don't think a lot of mm-hmm. and this is the thing where and you can do this with barbells but then you have a bar on your back that's kind of like bouncing up and down your spine which again I mean mm-hmm. you can you can do it like if I'm working with track athletes and I'm uh, chasing outputs mm-hmm. and I maybe can sacrifice a little bit of like I'm not going to do that with a tennis player that's for sure you know but like I could right. I could do speed or rhythmic based reps and so I look right. at like the a super cat or something or where where it's a little bit softer on the back and it seems like a lot of that work is done on a rhythm it's like up and down up and down Mm -hmm. up and down or or a jumping in Mm -hmm. a rhythm based movement so tell me a little bit about just your thoughts on that like like rhythmic adaptations of the body or utilizing something like that or pace of the movement in training well because what you're addressing is that that a strength room in a conventional sense is not addressing rhythm and timing at all and in fact the rhythm and timing that you're using for a conventional squat don't apply to sprinting they don't apply to change of direction in a a way that's fluid and for us to be maximally efficient we have to be able to do that so it's no different than than fighting you know the rhythm and timing of how you strike is so important because it's a coordinated uh, joint movement and we don't talk about timing so, for instance, like in a tennis serve, it's very important that if you're a right-handed, that when you're, you pull your left arm and you're essentially pulling your left arm down, and it, as your right arm goes up, that they happen at the exact same time. You can't pull your left, then try to fire your right, because now the timing's off. Um, and it's, it's the same thing in sprinting, that the up, upward movement of your arm and remember they're moving up and down not front to back has to coincide with the foot strike so the timing has to be the exact same thing and anybody that doesn't is going to argue this like come on like watch steph curry practice and shoot and how much he's done that and the timing and the in in terms of how he shoots and what he copies is the timing and when to release his hand and how to use his legs to power the ball out of his hand and so when you're not doing those things on a consistent basis, where are you learning them? And so what we're always trying to do is, you know, like, is to try to push those type of um, movement patterns. 
you know, with a tennis serve, I'll put like a little heavier ball in their right hand, lean it on their shoulder and force them to push off their back foot because so many people teach them to lean into their front foot and then you have no power. Hmm. So you're taking things like that, that directly transfer into the actual skill that they have to have to do. Um, and I think you, that's a, a whole nother discussion mm-hmm. of how important it is to learn the rhythm and timing of your mo- pitching motion, your running, your jumping, because Zach Levine has the best timing in his jump. If you're going to put him in the weight room and say, he's going to test by anybody else, I'm going to laugh my ass. <laughs> he's not, he's not going to, and I don't need him to. I'm, I want, you know, his vert at 45 inches. I'm not worried about how much weight he can lift. I'm, I'm worried about how fast he can apply his power and displace his own body. And that takes rhythm and timing. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff, Kevin. Oh, thank you so much for, um, you know, your time. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, man. Yeah, it was yeah. great. I know we've, we've been talking for a while, so I appreciate you, t- uh, yeah. you know, giving your time. I'm sure you probably got dinner, uh, to get to and things. Yeah. So. Uh, but thanks again. No problem, for, yeah, thank you again. And, and uh, best of luck to your uh, upcoming trainings and things like that. Yeah, I appreciate it. You too. Talk to you soon. That finishes another episode. If you enjoy the show and what we're doing, you can help us out by leaving us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. We'd really appreciate it. We will see you guys next week with another great guest.